When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode of the Broadway Hat Podcast is brought to you by the fantastic organization Ultranite. Fans might recognize that name from the coverage they received on MSG and on Rangers social media during the playoff bubble. They made specialty masks for Rangers players and staff from old hockey jerseys. If you've not heard of Ultranite, they are a children's hockey nonprofit organization with the mission to provide charitable, humanitarian, and educational services to underserved communities, children and youth who are lacking opportunity to participate in hockey programs. They collect new and secondhand hockey equipment for underprivileged families and raise funds to cover registration and cost fees for hockey facilities. They have teamed up with former and current New York Rangers, fans, and hockey personalities to get back to these communities. And just this last year, they've collaborated and partnered up with some Ranger legends, Mark Messier, Adam Graves, Ron Duguay, Matthew Barnaby, Darius Kasparitis, Aaron Asham. They partnered up with the WFAN Morning Show, Boomer Esiason, and Greg Giannotti with Rangers superfan Dance and Larry. Of course, you've seen them on TV on the Rangers social media, and they've teamed up the entire New York Rangers team and coaching staff. Please support their cause and allow them to continue their mission to give back to our communities. Visit ultranite.com, that's A-L-T-R-U-N-I-T-E.com to donate today. Hi, this is Kenny Albert. You're listening to the Broadway Hat Podcast with your host, Kyle Hall, the number one podcast for all things Rangers hockey. Welcome back to the Broadway Hat Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Hall, and we have a great show for you today. We're actually going to change it up. We're going to start off with our guests first and get into some Rangers hockey after the interview. But we have a phenomenal interview for you today. It is the 41st anniversary of the Miracle on Ice where the United States hockey team upsets the Soviet Union in Lake Placid to advance the gold medal game. And today we have on the gentleman that scored the game-winning gold medal goal in that gold medal game, Mr. Rob McClanahan. We have a fantastic interview with Rob. We talk about everything about making the Olympic team, playing for Herb Brooks in college for the Olympics when he went to the Rangers. We go into the behind-the-scenes with the team. What was real? What did Disney play up? We talk about the leg injury and how it was actually a bigger deal than they even made in the movie. 
really a phenomenal, phenomenal interview and just a, a great guy. And it was really incredible for me to sit down and talk to him. So without further ado, let's take it to our interview with Rob. Today, we welcome on a member of the 1980 Miracle on Ice team, gold medalist and former New York Ranger, Rob McClanahan. Rob, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you're born and raised in Minnesota. Is the goal always for you to play at University of Minnesota? No. Times are so different back then. Uh, I didn't look into playing in college until I was probably the late in my junior year of high school. And then um, I didn't get recruited until... They didn't start recruiting players until well into your senior season, and I didn't take any visits or make any visits until after my high school hockey season ended. So I looked at all the schools in the spring of my senior year of high school. And what schools were you looking at then? So I visited Michigan Tech. I, vi I talked to North Dakota. I talked to Harvard. I talked to Wisconsin. Obviously, I talked to Minnesota. I, um, and I... I I also visited Michigan, the University of Michigan. So I, that was my first visit, was going to the University of Michigan. Then I visited Michigan Tech. And then uh, I visited Minnesota. And Herbie had what he called a recruiting weekend, where he brought in all his recruits and their families for the weekend. And once I went through that, uh, there was no question I wanted to go to Minnesota. So you played three years at the university there, all for Herb Brooks. What was that like playing for him there? <laughs> it was hard. <laughs> uh, very rewarding, very demanding, not much different in some aspects than it would be anywhere else. Uh, learning how to play in the college game versus high school took some time, not only for my, for me, but for anybody who came there, especially the, my uh, incoming classmates. But we all went to Minnesota for one reason, and that was because they were the best, one of the best programs in the country at the time. And that's why it was either Michigan Tech or Minnesota for me because those two schools played in the national championship game three years in a row. So you played for Herb there, then you played for him at the Olympics and then with the NHL. Yep. Was there a lot of change you saw at him at each level when you played for him, or was he pretty much the same kind of coach? Oh, no. He was he was a definitely a student of the game, and he realized that what he the tactics he used in college wouldn't work in, on the Olympic team, nor would they work in the pros. And so he was he adapted. And the higher up he moved, he realized he needed his leaders to buy into what he was doing. And then if that were to happen, everyone would follow. On the Olympic team, it was a little different because he had, what, 10 guys from Minnesota or eight guys from Minnesota. And so he had to sell the other 12 or other 14 who were originally on the team. And once he did that, then he just had to bring us all together and and that just took a matter of time. Six months is what, what it took. And what was that pre-Olympic process like, the tryouts and all that? Was that, you know, you see in Miracle, they say it was only one day on the ice. Yeah. Was that true? No, not even, no. So the tryout started late August of 19, excuse me, late July of 1979. They ran for about two weeks. And we, they had four teams. They were, uh team from Minnesota, a team from the East, a team from the Midwest, and I, I guess you could call it an at-large team. And so we played games. It was a tournament. We played games every other day, and on the off days we would practice and we would get tested for speed, agility, uh, things like that. And it was really intense. I mean, it was very intense. And 
So after two weeks, he had 84 players in a room, and we, we all sat in, you know, grade school desks. And this was at midnight. And he said, I'm going to list off 26 players. If and when you hear your name, get up and go back to the room behind me. He said, and uh, anybody who whose name wasn't called but wants to uh, discuss why they weren't chosen, I'll stay here as long as it takes to explain why you weren't picked. So he started listing off names, and, and Neil Broughton was sitting to my left at the time. And, you know, I played for her for three years. I thought I had him figured out to some degree, but there was no rhyme or reason as to how he named the players. It wasn't geographic. It wasn't age. It wasn't by school. And so he'd gone through about two-thirds of the names. And I looked over at Neil, and he looked at me, and neither of our names had been called, and we started rolling our eyes. And right after that, Neil's name was called, and my name was called right after that. So then we had to get up, and we had to act stoic and controlled because as excited as we were, we have 64 other or 60 other players that are left behind. And so that that was as big a moment for me as winning a gold medal because it was something, it was an objective I set. I trained endlessly to be in the, in the best shape I could be. And I was not guaranteed a spot on the team. And how tough was that training camp? So you guys went on a, it was a 60 game schedule. You went through, you went to Europe and came back. So how difficult was that training camp? It was fun, but the whole season was a training camp. And we had, I guess you could say we, we had four different periods of time where he just, worked us endlessly to make sure we were in top shape. Um, but it was also fun. We were living away from home. We didn't have to go to school. You know, it was like we were playing as a professional. We, we, we had, we did receive some, a small stipend of money that uh, allowed us to pay rent and things like that. We were on the road. We played 63 games and 51 of those were on the road. So we were constantly gone. We had to become a close knit group because we traveled all the time and, it was, a, it was a ton of fun. The one thing I will say to this, one of the things that Herbie said in the next practice after he had selected the team was, you guys are going to improve more in the next six months than you have your entire lives. And the reason is, when, and he gave examples, when you play basketball, you can't score without the ball. When you play football, you can't score without the ball. And we're going to play a game that we're going to possess the puck. We're not going to dump and chase. And we're going to interchange positions. We're not going to go up and down the ice. We're going to, we're going to be creative. And I won't. I will not come down on you if you make a mistake trying to do something offensive or trying to be creative. I encourage that. And he was right. It was an absolute blast. And was the animosity real between the Minnesota and Boston guys? Sure it was. Uh, I, I didn't get in a fight with OC because everybody knows him. <laughs> he's about 6'1". I'm 5'10 on a good day. There's no way I would have dropped my stick. I would have two-handed him instead. So, <laughs> Uh, that was broken down very early in the process. The one scene in the movie where we did skate in Norway uh, and they did turn out the lights, that did happen. I will say we did not get sick on the ice like they did in the movie, but um, we skated for probably an hour. And then we had to play them again the next day. And we I don't remember the score, but it wasn't close. What ended the skate? I don't remember. Uh, I know so that Mark Ruzioni yelling. No, Mike didn't do that. But Mark Johnson did slam his stick against the glass. Herbie didn't see it because it was dark. You know, he asked who did it. And nobody spoke up. So we skated a bit more. And I think Nagy, Doc Nagabods, had as much to do with it as anything. He finally convinced Herbie he'd done enough. And then just days before the Olympics, you guys go and play the Soviets at MSG and get beat pretty badly. 
what was it like kind of, I guess, on that bus trip up to Lake Placid? What was going through your head? Like, we got to play these guys again. Uh, you know, what was the confidence shot going up there? No, and I wouldn't say we got beat pretty badly. I'd say we got absolutely crushed. It was 10 to 3, and it wasn't that close. Yeah, and Al Michaels tells a great story about that. Um, it truly wasn't that close. So we had a team meeting the next day in Lake Placid, and Herbie said, Herbie was prepared for everything. I mean, and I don't think he was probably, he was probably disappointed, but I'm not sure he was wildly surprised that we got crushed. But he said, he said, if we play at the top of our game and we get some breaks, we can win a bronze. If we play at the top of our game and get every break, we can win a silver. Forget the gold, the Soviets have the gold. And that's what he said. But then you have two weeks of, of games. And he also stated that our first two games were the most important because we started with Sweden and we played the Czechs game too. And we needed to take care of business early and then we would control our own destiny. And that's what happened. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. But as the tournament progressed, the Soviets were flat. They had to come from behind against Canada. They had to come from behind against the Finns. And Herbie started playing on that. And um, we had huge support with the, with the local fans. Um, you know, it's great playing in your own country. It was phenomenal. You talk about the Sweden game. So the leg injury in the Sweden game. Yeah. Was it that big of a blow up in the locker room? <laughs> it was bigger. It was actually bigger, <laughs> bigger than the movie. Because I followed Herbie out into the uh, hallway. And Sweden's locker room was next to ours. And before he left the locker room, I was this close from throwing a punch. And the guys held me back. I was ready to throw it. He turned and walked out. And I followed him out into the hallway. And I'm yelling at him. He's yelling at me. And I'm saying, you're not going to tell me if I can play. I'll tell you if I can play. But at the end of the day, I ended up playing. You know, I was a, I'm one and a half legs. And, and, but I played. And, you know, Billy Baker scored that big goal. And the rest is history. So I guess him in the locker room yelling that fired up the rest of the team though. I've never talked, I never talked to Herbie about it ever. Uh, and I never had a chance. And once he passed away, obviously that opportunity was gone, but I've really never talked to anybody on our team about that scene, about that, that, that occurrence. Um, but it's hard to argue with results. I'd seen Herbie do this at Minnesota with Joe Micheletti. I'd seen him do it with a, Another uh, senior player, Tommy Vanelli. So Herbie pushes people. Herbie's not easy to play for. And he, he won't push those who he knows can't handle it. But he will get in your face. So you guys play the Czechs in game two. And you beat them pretty good, 7-3. And they were the number two ranked yep. team in the world then. After that game, and you guys saw the rest of your you know, opponents were lesser than, than those two teams. Was your confidence a sky high heading into the medal rounds? 
Sure it was. I, it was – we had gained confidence every game. And the, the toughest game that we played in the uh, pool play was West Germany because historically West Germany had always given the U.S. teams trouble, and it was no different in Lake Placid. So we had to – you know, but we also had to come from behind in seven of the eight games we played. And going back to the – when Herbie selected the team, the other thing he said that first day of practice – was we may not be the best team in the tournament, but we will be the best conditioned team. And you saw that in the Olympics because we may have been, you know, outscored or we the, the goal ratio in the first period were probably very close to one-to-one. But the goal ratio in the third period, I'm guessing, was four to five to one in our favor. And that's where it paid off. So we were – it also made us mentally stronger. And you're playing a game every other day, and it's tough. So – Conditioning played a huge role, and the fact that we were playing really well and we had fans uh, supporting us, our confidence grew each and every game, for sure. So talk about the fans and the, the telegraphs you guys were getting, everything before the Soviet game. Did you guys feel the importance of everything that was going on in the world at that time? Uh, like, you know, kind of like a, an added? To a degree, but not to the degree that you'd probably get it today, because we didn't have cell phones. You had three networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, and you had... ESPN had just started in November of 1979. So the availability of, of or the, the ability of, of being able to reach out was limited. But we did get telegrams, and we pasted all of our telegrams on our wall. One of the telegrams that, that we, uh, we talk about quite often is there was a, a woman from Texas, and all she said was, beat those county bastards. That's a pretty strong telegram. <laughs> no. So going into the Soviet game, Herb has a famous speech beforehand. What is a locker room mood like before puck drop? Nervous. Yeah. Very nervous. Um, calm. Um, but not overwhelmed. Uh, but we knew we had a tough road ahead of us. I mean, if you had asked us, do we think we – we wouldn't have played the game if we didn't think we had a chance. But we knew we needed to get a ton of breaks. And um, the things that transpired throughout the game as the game progressed blew me away. The fact that he pulled that, that, that they pulled Trachek after the first period was a huge lift. But bear in mind, once he did that, they outshot us 12 to 2 in the second period. So it may have ticked off some of the Soviet players that Trachek was pulled, but the, the result was he, the coach got what he wanted and, and they dominated that second period. Um, Jimmy played well. And then, you know, we made the plays that we had to make, and without question, we got lucky. But as the game got into the third period and later in the third period, the Soviets did things they've never done. Now, the puck would roll over their stick. We got bounces, just like the, the World Junior Team last night got bounces. You know, the Canadians hit a couple of posts. We got bounces where the Soviets didn't execute on some plays that normally they would without any issues. And so you have to take advantage of those things. And when Rizzo scored – to go up 4-3 with 10 minutes to go, you ask anybody on our team, that last ten, those last 10 minutes were the longest 10 minutes of my life. So one of the breaks you guys got was the, the Mark Johnson goal, you know, kind of like sneaking through the defense there to end the first period. Now you played on the line with him for, you know, the entire Olympics. Yes. How good of a player was he? Oh, man, we called him magic. He was our magic. He was a, by far our best player. He was our offensive leader, not just in the Olympics, but throughout the year. And he... You know, when Mark, when it, Magic went, we went. And, and that play just shows you that we, you, you never quit. You play until the end because you never know. 
there's a phrase that that people have used. Kenny Morrow's used it, and, and I've used it when I speak to groups. It says, success occurs when preparation meets opportunity. Well, there was an opportunity right there, and Mark took, Mark took advantage of it. And you never know when those opportunities arise, but if you don't prepare for it, it doesn't matter. And going into that third period, it's you guys 3-2. Obviously, the game is, is right there for you guys. What's said in the locker room before you go out there for the third period? I'll be honest with you. I don't remember a lot that was said in the locker room between the second and third period of the Soviet game. Um, I, I don't recall. It's interesting because when we get together, some guys will tell a story or, or, or something that occurred and it'll jar my memory. And then I'll tell a story that will jar their memory. And I don't, honestly don't recall what Herbie said, if, if he said much at all. And then after the game, obviously, you guys are skating around the ice <laughs> and looking to, this, looking to the crowd. I mean, can you even describe that feeling? It was incredible. I mean, it was incredible. And so, as he always was, Herbie was prepared for anything. I, I believe he was probably the only coach that was prepared to go up 4-3 with 10 minutes to go. And though you know he was nervous, he was calm and collected on the bench. And all he said was, play your game. He dumbed it down. He didn't get any in, in, into technical stuff. He just said, play your game. You know, you, you practice for six months. You play together for six months. You just have to trust. And you have to do what he just said, play your game. So obviously we were wildly excited after that game. And we knew, uh, you know, there's still a game to, to be played. And thankfully it was less than 48 hours later that we played the Finns. But I will say this, we had a practice on Saturday that wasn't necessarily the longest practice of the year, but it was one of the hardest practices. Herbie, he never let up, man. He, he, he kept us focused from day from the first day to the last day. You guys fall behind 2-1 to the Finns in the gold medal game going to the third period. I guess, same question. What What is the team feeling like going into that third? All right, so now this I do remember. <laughs> um, first of all, before the game, Herbie walked into the locker room. Now, Herbie always had a speech, and he was always prepared, as I mentioned earlier. But this particular game, he walked in, he paced back and forth, and he said, I don't know if I can, if I can use profanity, but if I'm going to quote him, I, is that okay? If you can quote someone, it's fine, yeah. Yeah, this is a quote from Herbie. All he said was, if you lose this game, you'll take it to your fucking grave. He turned, walked to the door, turned back, hesitated, and said, you're fucking grave. And that's all he said. And he left the locker room. So we, what do we do? We get scored on first. Uh, this for the, what, seventh time out of eight games. But after the second period, we're down 3-2. Herbie didn't want to go into the locker room, and Craig Patrick tells this great story. And, and Patty said, Herbie said, I, I, I don't want to go in there. You go in there. You get him ready. So Patty came in. Patty started talking to us. We said, Patty, get the hell out of here. He said, there, we said, there is no way we're going to lose this game. So Patty walked out and Herbie said, how'd it go? He said, they're ready. And the rest is history. You know, Phil scored, scored the tying goal. And uh, I ended up getting the winning goal. I don't remember how much time was left, but uh, we knew – when, when I scored the, the winning goal to go up 3-2, and I looked at Mark, we knew that it was over. It was just finishing out the game. We knew we'd won it. Now, for you personally, scoring the game-winning goal in the Olympic, you know, Olympic final, where does that – I mean, is that the top ranking for your achievement in sport? Well, I can't lie. A 
for me, yeah. Now I've scored some big goals in my life. I mean, but if you want to go all the way back to squirts and peewees, uh, my peewee team won the national title when Minnesota was going to the national tournament and I scored the goal in overtime, but let's be real here. That was absolutely by far the biggest goal I've ever scored in my life. Mm-hmm. Now you guys, after the gold medal, you get on Air Force One and head to the White House. And there's a parade for you waiting there as well. What was that day like? Well, it was amazing. The streets were lined 10 people deep on both sides. We had no idea. So you asked earlier, were we aware of the impact across the country? And to be quite honest with you, no, we weren't. Not to the level that we experienced it after we left Lake Placid. It was incredible. The streets were lined with people, 10, 15 people deep all the way to the White House. And then from there, we went home those from Minnesota went back to Minneapolis and we had a parade there and it was just as crazy. It was just, it was amazing the impact we had on the country. And you went directly from basically parade to Buffalo yeah. to play for the neighbors. Yeah. What was that adjustment like going to the NHL? I was fried. I was, I was completely exhausted from this season. I, the mistake I made was playing. I should have taken the rest of that year off and started in the fall. But, um, you know, Mike Ramsey and I went there. I, I can't, say how Rammer felt, uh, but I just wasn't as sharp. I was mentally exhausted. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Iowans, you have dozens of betting options. Try a sports book built by bettors and run by bettors. Fred Doan started BetFred over 50 years ago with funds from a winning bet, and he's been known for delivering the best betting experience ever since. Visit BetFredSports.com to give us a try. New customers betting $50 get 111 in Fred bets and up to 200 Fred bets per week for five weeks. Terms apply. Proud partner of the Iowa Cubs and Iowa Wild. Must be 21 plus. Wagers only accepted in Iowa. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-BETS-OFF. And it took its toll. So uh, it was, I, I, with that said, my first game out, I played, uh, we played, I believe we played St. Louis in Buffalo. And Gilbert Perot scored four goals, or excuse me, Gilbert Perot had four assists. Richard Martin scored four goals, and it was welcome to the NHL. So uh, Buffalo was a very good team at the time. Obviously, they came in second behind Philly during the regular season. And it was, Buffalo is a great city to play hockey. Yes, you played there for a couple of years. What was, I guess, was there any veterans there that took you under their, their wing when you first got there as a young American? They all did, quite honestly. Uh, I can't pick out any one particular person, but uh, Don Lewis and Craig Ramsey were really, really good to me. But they all treated me, treated us, Mike and I, extremely well and, and welcomed us into the locker room. And that was, that was a big deal. And then you went to Hartford for a year, and then you get traded to the Rangers where you reunite with uh, Craig Patrick and Herb Brooks is now the head coach. Yeah. 
So what was that transition like going back to play for those two guys? Well, I was in Hartford for a cup of coffee, to be quite honest. I was there for a month. And then I ended up going to uh, – I was uh, ended up with New York, and I, I went to Springfield where their farm team was for, I think, a week and a half or something like that. But once I got to New York, it was fabulous because Herbie put me on line with Ron Duguay and, and Pav. And um, that was the best part of my career. We played great. And, uh, you know, we were fast. I knew how Herbie wanted – I knew what he wanted from me. In that aspect, I knew how to play for her. And there were no secrets. And so my time in New York was absolutely the most fun time I had in the NHL, without question. Craig Patrick's there as well. You know, he was there. He brought Herb in. And you talk about Craig being the assistant coach. What was the kind of like yin-yang relationship the two of them had? Herbie and Craig? Yeah. It, it changed a little bit, obviously, in New York because Craig was actually Herbie's boss. I'm not sure how that went all the time, but they definitely had the same vision. And Craig had witnessed Herbie. Craig knew what Herbie was capable of, uh, and that's why he hired him. So the key there in New York is what I had mentioned earlier in this podcast was that Herbie had to convince his leaders on the Rangers that what he's the style he's coaching is going to be beneficial for everybody. And so it took some time, but the guys bought into it and – you know, the Rangers were, we were good. We just ran into a team called the New York Islanders that were just a, a little bit better. But Herbie had some good teams in New York. So you play, you know, they, they what the Philly called you, the, the Blue Smurfs or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. there. And, I mean, you had a great year. You had 48 points, 22 goals, yep. playing with, like you said, playing with Mark Pavlich. So what really clicked for you from your game perspective when you got there that, you know, you, you said you were more comfortable in, in Herbie's system or – Okay, so uh, when I first got there, I played with Ron Duguay, and then uh, Herbie put me, put me together with Pav and, and Anders Hedberg. And we, we were aligned throughout that time, and we just knew where each other were. We talked, we communicated, we were able to read off each other. We played similar styles. We all could skate very well. We, could, we had good you know, puck control, unselfish players, and we had fun playing together. And when you're fast and the other team can't skate and Philly's defensemen were slow – it's an opportunity to have some, some, some fun. And Philly could never keep up with us. They just never could keep up with us. And it was, it was just, that was a blast. You talk about the Islanders. That was in the peak of their dynasty. Then what made those teams so difficult to play against their depth, their, their high end players were hall of famers. Their goaltending was as good as anything, anyone in the league, not just Billy Smith, but Chico Resch. They didn't have a lot of weaknesses. They could play any style you wanted to play. If you wanted to play fast, they'll play fast. You want to play a grinding game, they'll play a grinding game. You want to get in a bunch of fights, they'll fight. They just, they had everything. And they had, their their leaders were their best players. I mean, they're, look at Brian Trotchy. I mean, all world. And after the season, you went down to Tulsa and played a few games down there. And then you retired. Why did you retire? Why did you decide to retire though? Well, this is a bad part of my career, but... um. After that year, uh, Craig Patrick and Herbie brought in two kids from Sweden. Um, can't remember their names. I should. Uh, they're good guys. I have no, I have no you know, vengeance towards, towards them at all. But So I, I went to camp the next fall with a, as much confidence as I'd ever had. And at the end of training camp, I was sent to the minors, and it devastated. I was devastated. So... I went down there and played and then they called me up and I played sparingly that last year. And I, I just kind of lost my zest for the game. 
uh, it was no longer a game. It was a job. So I'll tell you a story. So once that season ended, I ended up, I was working on Wall Street for Bear Stearns, uh, excuse me, for Morgan Stanley, because I knew I wasn't going to play hockey the rest of my life. I needed another career. We didn't make that kind of money. And I got a phone call from a writer from the New York, I believe the New York Post. I don't remember his name, but he asked me about what I thought about the trade. Now, this is, again, before cell phones and, and anything, so I hadn't heard anything. And apparently I'd been traded from uh, the Rangers to Detroit. And this was in July, in June of 1984. And so I found out from a writer that I'd been traded to, to Detroit. And then uh, I called Craig and, you know, he, we talked a bit. And then I ended up talking to Jimmy Devilano, who was the general manager of Detroit at the time. And I, he said, welcome to, to the team. Uh, I, I asked him, can we move my, our stuff to Detroit? He said, absolutely. So my, I was married at the time, my wife and I. We shipped half our stuff to Detroit and put it in storage and half our stuff we drove back to Minnesota to spend three weeks, four weeks in Minnesota. And then the day before we were to fly to Detroit, a month later, flying to Detroit to go look for a place to live, I got a call from Jim Devilano. I'd been traded to Vancouver for Tiger Williams. So as he told me this, I started laughing. And my wife said, what, you get traded again? I said, yes. So I went to the Vancouver camp and they had a coach they just hired named Bill LaForge. Now, if you look up Bill LaForge, he was a very successful junior coach and he also encouraged uh, a lot of fighting. Well, anybody that knows me, I'm 5'10 on a good day and fighting wasn't uh, part of my repertoire. I mean, I, I got in a couple of fights in the NHL, but it wasn't by design. So I went to camp and I had lost my zest and I, I ended up retiring. I just said, forget it. And I ended up going to work in Chicago for Morgan Stanley. And I'm still in the same business as I, you know, still doing that, that gig. And when you look back at the Olympic team and all the times you guys were together off the ice, uh, are there any good, funny stories off the ice you can share with us? A lot of good stories. Um, you know, we used to prank everybody all the time. You'd put skates on the, or tape on the bottom of a guy's skates. When they go on the ice, they'd wipe out. Back in those days, we used wooden sticks. So there used to be a piece of foil around just above the blade. You'd unpeel the foil and saw the stick. And so a guy would go out and take a shot. He'd snap it, things like that. But, um, you know, we were 21, 22 at the time, young kids just getting our hair wet a little bit and, and enjoying life and enjoying what, what was in front of us. And it was a one heck of an experience. And in the locker room, who were the guys who really stood up and talked in that locker room? Was it a collective leadership group or was it just a certain couple of guys? Ah, you know what? Everybody had a moment. Um, some were, were more boisterous. Uh, Mark Johnson didn't say a lot, but he, he, he showed it in, in how he played. Uh, but we all talked. I mean, if you look at that locker room, most of those guys were, were or would have been captains on their college teams. So everyone in that locker room was a leader. And leaders know how to get things done. And Herbie was aware of that. And I guess from that Soviet game, looking back on it, is there a moment anytime during that game where like you still just, it is a vivid memory in your head of just a, like a certain play or, you know, a certain moment? Yeah, when the clock read zero, because what people don't realize is that the Soviets had the ability to score on a dime. They could score at any moment. And yet it, for 10 minutes, they, they couldn't or they didn't. And it was amazing. And 
I'm telling you, we couldn't relax until that clock. I don't care if there was a second left and the puck was in their zone. They, they had the ability to find a way to score. And, and we had experienced that in Madison Square Garden. So, and I had seen it when I went in the World Tournament in 1979, how good they were. So that moment with the clock at zero, that's something I'll never forget. And so now you're, you're coaching now at the Blake School, right? Yes. Yep. What are some of the practices? I don't know if you can incorporate anything from Herb Brooks from, from way back when, but what are some of the things that you can incorporate from his teachings to what you're telling your players now? Very simple. I'm not a, I'm not any better at X's and O's than anybody else, but I do know this. I know how to make, I know how to bring a group of young men together. And I know that if they play the way I ask them to play, which is unselfishly uh, in practice, we do a lot of overspeed stuff. I want them to push their limits. I want them to get out of their comfort zone so that they, when they get into a game and the speed doesn't overwhelm them and they realize that they're capable of more than they thought they were. And so we push them in practice. We don't push them by yelling at them, but we do, we, they, they, we do a lot of drills that require things to go to work as quickly and fast as they can. And sometimes, oftentimes they'll make mistakes, but as the season progresses, they'll realize that they're improving. And the other aspect I preach is I don't want to dump the puck in. I hate dumping the puck. That's not to say we won't do that, but as Herbie said, you can't score without the puck. And I would much rather possess it and regroup and attack again than go dump and chase. My grandmother can dump and chase the puck. It doesn't, no one improves that way. And what, it, what is, my job is not to win. My job is to get these young men to figure out that they're better than they think they are and to use what they learn playing hockey for me for experiences later in life because that's what I've done and the the biggest thing is that uh, you know you plan the work and work the plan and you're capable of more than you think you are but it's not without its sacrifices you have to work hard to achieve those things but it you're capable of doing it. do you think Herbert like today's NHL game that's a little more open than it was I think so um, he would have been frustrated with with uh, I think where the power lies now, the players have a lot more power than they did back in our day, in my day. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but, and, and Herbie was, was a, like I said, he was a student of the game. And look at how he adapted to coaching the 2002 uh, U.S. team in Salt Lake City. Those guys played for him, uh, and they, you know, they won a silver. It, it's too bad because they had a good enough team to win the gold. And, and um, I think I don't know if Herbie would like that. I like the game, but I, I what I don't like is is I, I just don't like teams giving up possession. I'd rather see someone try to do something and 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 fail than to dump and chase. Now I I know it's a money game and I get all that, but the problem you have with that is that filters down into the youth programs and and these coaches, not all of them, but a lot of coaches aren't teaching anything. They're, they're teaching, they're, they're coaching to win, not to teach. And there's a big okay. difference. There's a big difference there. Are there any players now in the NHL that you watch that you want your players to watch? All like certain guys that. All of them. I mean, obviously the, the high end guys, but you know, for example, um, we just started practice and we finally got back on the ice after COVID. So um, when the uh, U S beat the Finns, right. The Finns tied it in third and then the uh, U S scored with what a minute 20 left in the third. 
And the way they scored that winning goal, that mirrored a drill we had just done that day in practice where the guy was in the slot. He just, he didn't stick handle. He caught it and shot it. And so all I said to him the next day was I asked him who watched the game. Did you see the winning goal? What was explain it to me? What did you see? And they, and a bunch of guys said it was what we just practiced. And so that's what I mean when I want to get them out of the comfort zone, because these kids have a tendency to over stick handle and wait too long when in reality, it's not how hard you shoot it. It's really how quickly you get the shot off. Mike Bossy had a great shot and it, it wasn't, I mean, he was accurate without question, but the reason he scored so many goals is because he shot so quickly. The goalie never had a chance to get set. I mean, he had other skills without question, but man, the two quickest shots I've ever seen are Mike Bossy's wrist shot and, and Brett Hull's. And those guys shot quickly, and that makes a huge difference. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck to you and the team this year. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you again to Rob McClanahan for joining us this week. It was truly an honor to be able to sit down and talk to him and talk to him about his incredible NHL and hockey career. Really, just to hear those stories about the 1980 team and talk about Herb Brooks and you know, get the inside scoop on the leg injury. It was incredible for me to talk to him, and I hope everyone enjoyed it, and I wish him all the best at the Blake School and his head coaching job, and really, really thank him for taking the time of his day for joining me. Okay, so now let's get into some New York Rangers hockey from this week, and the week started off rough with the Rangers losing to the Devils, a team that had 15 days off because of COVID and was really undermanned, and the Rangers came out completely flat, and they lose 5-2. to two. You know, just the game the Rangers really want to forget about. After the game, both Mika Zibanejad and Chris Kreider both came out and said that they need a better effort from everyone. I think they were talking about themselves because they, the two of them are really really didn't look that great Monday night. And uh, the team responded on Wednesday. They come out. They have a good team win against the Flyers. You know, they, they battled all game against them. They didn't look super good, but, you know, they kept themselves in the game. The defense played well. They win 3-2 in a shootout. You know, one of the better players in the game, and he scored a shootout goal, was Capo Caco. And I think he's really taking the turn. Even though he's not getting the points and putting up the numbers, his two-way play has been so much better this year. And I, I said a couple episodes, I'm just so much more impressed by his play and his his demeanor on the ice is so much more controlled. And he looks so much more, he's playing with so much more confidence out there. So it's great to see him developing. And then Panera, unfortunately, you know, missed uh, Monday's game uh, against the Devils, which... Kind of led to the offense being pretty inept, but he comes out against the Flyers and plays really well. Uh, has about six shots on goal. He scores the other goal on the shootout, and the Rangers win. Gorgiev looked very good in net. Unfortunately, he lets up a late goal that, you know, almost on a minute left to tie to go to overtime. But, you know, other than a fluke goal that bounced off of Adam Fox's foot, you know, Gorgiev played really well in net. So it's good to see him have a bounce back after a couple bad games. But the Rangers get the win there. And then we're recording this right after the Rangers win on Saturday, where really one of the best Ranger games all year since the last Capitals game. So I don't know what it is with the Capitals that brings up the best in the Rangers, but Rangers look very good today. The, I think Coach Quinn's listening to the podcast because he finally put Panarin and Mika on the same line. And sure enough, Mika gets a empty net goal to, you know, maybe gets him going. You know, it's an empty netter, but still it's good to see your name on the score sheet and uh, maybe that gets him going, and Lafreniere plays on the line today, and Lafreniere scores a goal off a great feed by Panarin. Uh, Panarin on the power play has a, a shot that, you know, puts a shot on net, and it deflects, you know, the goalie deflect, you know, makes a save and deflects right to Kreider, and Kreider puts in for an easy goal on the backside. So 
Uh, Ryan Strom chipped in with a 100th career goal. Also, he got his 100th Ranger point today. So, all in all, really good game. You know, when the Rangers' top six is rolling, this is the team you need. You need the top six to score. When your top six is going, the Rangers are going to win. The defense played great. Adam Fox is a beast. Guy plays 30 minutes a game now. He's everywhere on the ice, blocking shots, hitting people, you know, putting pucks on net. Uh, he's just, he's been such a stud. He's taken such a great jump in his second year. Yeah, Keandre Miller played really well tonight. And uh, Igor Shesterkin, Shesterkin again, you know, one goal, gives up one goal, looks great in net. You know, wasn't tested too much, but, um, you know, it was a good bounce back game after a rough game on Monday against the Devils, but he really didn't get much help on Monday. You can't put the loss on him, but he bounces back and plays great. Gorgiev, like I said, played great Wednesday. So, you know, the Rangers right now are Truba's out next four to six weeks. So the defense is again going to be tested. And Keandre returned to the lineup today after missing a couple games and played well. Uh, Brennan Smith has played, you know, well. He hasn't hurt the team at all. Even, I hate to say it, Jack Johnson didn't play that bad on Wednesday. He took a very dumb penalty 14 seconds into his first shift, which. Made Ranger fans probably think, here we go again. But he actually settled down and actually played pretty well. Um, you know, I think one of the other surprises is the play of Potato and, and Hayek. Hayek has looked very good. You know, he had an up-and-down career so far with the Rangers. You know, he's balanced back between the NHL and the AHL level. And I've asked a lot of guests that have come on the show what they think about him, and they keep on saying what a great athlete he is, and they think it's going to stick, and they think he can play in the NHL. And right now he's showing that he can. Potato has stepped in. He's... Actually, played pretty well offensively. Uh, he's also plays a good physical game in the defensive zone, but he gets another assist today as well. So, all in all, the Rangers D, even without Truba, they've been stepping up and playing very well. And I mean, obviously, the first defensive pairing of Fox and Lindgren lead the way. Lindgren actually was chipping a little bit in offense today, but you just love his nasty game, you know. And and Fox plays so well off of him, and you know, Fox, like I said, every game, he just looks great. He very rarely makes a mistake. You know, unfortunately, Wednesday night, he had a puck bounce off his leg, which is not really his fault, but every game he steps up and he looks good. So the Rangers have a couple games coming up here that, I, I mean, you got to beat the Flyers coming up on Tuesday. It's in Philly, so it'll be a ton of tests. You know, just one in Philly this last week, so you go back to Philly and play again. And then, uh, you know, looking at the standings right now, you're still only four points back of a playoff spot. So... You had that bad week two weeks ago. You come back, you bounce back a little bit here, but you know season's not over with. A lot of the season left, and hopefully today the goals by Lafreniere and Zabanjic get them going. And I hope Quinn keeps his line together. I think that's the biggest thing. He needs to. Get, this line looked very good today. You gotta keep him rolling. Kako unfortunately is out right now with COVID uh, protocols. So we don't know how long he'll be out for. But you know, coming up, you have Philly on the road, and then you have a couple games at home. You play Boston again at home two games in a row next weekend. You know, the Boston's a tough, tough team. So if you can try to split with Boston, and then you have Buffalo and New Jersey and Pittsburgh after that. Those are games you have to win. You got to beat New Jersey. You got to beat Buffalo. And you got to beat Pittsburgh. I don't think Pittsburgh is that great. I, I think there's a lot of holes. The defense is not a great defense. And the offense, I mean, they had the one big line. Uh, Malkin's not playing well, but... You know, Crosby and Rust are, are playing very well. They're still playing at a very high level. But, I mean, these are games you got to win if you're going to make the playoffs. you got to get to that four seed. And uh, right now, Pittsburgh looks like the team that's slotted into that four seed going forward. So that's a team you got to take out to take that spot back. So the Rangers have, you know, obviously you play every one division. So all your games are right in front of you. You know, you're passing everyone. You know, anyone you need to pass, you get a play. So as long as the Rangers can put some wins together here, 
get some confidence back. I think Igor had his bounce back game today. I think he gets his head back in a positive area. And yeah, I think just this offense needs us to keep on. You got to keep this offense together. You got to keep that top line together and let those guys go. It's crazy that it took this long of the season to put your three top offensive players together on the same line, but it finally happened and they clicked and they produced. So we'll see what next week brings, but you know, very good closing to the week for the Rangers and uh, let's hope they can keep this momentum going next week. And before we end today's episode, I wanted to let everyone know of a subscriber giveaway that we're doing right now. So if you are a subscriber or you follow the Broadway Hat podcast, or even if you don't, you can do it right now. So go subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just become a follower on Spotify. And if you go on my Twitter page at KHallNY or on our Instagram account, the Broadway Hat Podcast on Instagram, we have it posted on both accounts where if you show that you left a review, you are eligible to win a Kevin Hayes signed puck. The contest will run through next Sunday. So please subscribe and leave a review and also add that to a comment on either of the social media networks for you to be entered into the contest. And that does it for episode 11 of the Broadway Hat Podcast. Please hit the follow button on Spotify. You can follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at the Broadway Hat Instagram account and then my personal Twitter account at KHallNY for all New York Ranger updates. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. Iowans, you have dozens of betting options. Try a sports book built by bettors and run by bettors. Fred Doan started BetFred over 50 years ago with funds from a winning bet, and he's been known for delivering the best betting experience ever since. Visit BetFredSports.com to give us a try. New customers betting $50 get 111 in Fred bets and up to 200 Fred bets per week for five weeks. Terms apply. Proud partner of the Iowa Cubs and Iowa Wild. Must be 21 plus. Wagers only accepted in Iowa. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-BETS-OFF.